Passing of the Act of Union with Ireland, however, the very beginning of the last century, the condition of these roads became a matter of some political importance. The Irish members, anxious to secure better communications between Ireland and London, brought constant and steady pressure on a rather reluctant government. It was as a result of their agitation that John Rennie was appointed in 1801 to report on the most suitable route and on the most favourable site for a harbour for packet boats to Ireland. Rennie recommended Holyhead, and within six years money was voted for the construction of harbour works there. Little was done, however, in the way of road improvement. This was the state of affairs when, at the instigation of the Chancellor of the Irish Exchequer, Thomas Telford was instructed to examine the route between Shrewsbury and Holyhead. A parliamentary select committee took evidence as to the state of the road in 1810 and the following year issued its report and made its recommendations, but no action was taken. In 1815, Sir Henry Parnell, the member for Queen's County, Ireland, a man of great drive and determination, took up the issue. With characteristic enthusiasm and foresight, he set up a second select committee with himself as chairman. <laughs> Mr. Aker, sir. Thank you. Mr. Akers. You are riding surveyor to the post office. I am assistant riding surveyor. Assistant, I see. Mr. Akers, from your situation in the post office, are complaints referred to you as to the bad state of the road upon which the mail coach travels? Uh, yes, frequently. And these complaints, generally speaking, are they well founded? As near as I can guess, uh, they are well founded. I see. Have any accidents happened upon the road? Oh, several. Uh, uh, many owing to the bad state of the roads. And is every accident that retards the mail taken notice of? Well, perhaps we don't get an account of them all, but uh, these are as many as have been reported to us. Thank you. I can take it upon myself to say that there were several others besides those. I see. Mr. Akers, <coughs> have you been lately upon that section of the road from Shrewsbury to Hollyhead? Uh, yes, I have. And what is the condition of that section? Well, at this time of the year, it may be pretty good, owing to the March winds. But in the winter, it is shocking in most parts of it. Oh, I have seen many accidents when I have been upon that road. Several horses with their legs broken, three in one week. One proprietor of the mail was actually ruined, owing to the misfortunes which occurred, owing to the bad state of the roads. That was an excerpt from a dramatisation by Edwin Williams of the story of Menai Suspension Bridge, performed recently in the Gwyneth Theatre in Bangor in North Wales. 
It was part of a week's celebrations to commemorate the opening of the bridge 150 years ago. Regarded as one of the finest suspension bridges in the world and a pioneer work of engineering in its day, the bridge spans the Menai Straits and links the island of Anglesey to the mainland of Carnarvonshire. It has always been of special interest to Ireland because of the link with Hollyhead and hence to Dunlairy. And it was largely through the efforts of Irish MPs at Westminster that the bridge came to be built. This fact was not forgotten during the recent anniversary, most of which we attended in the two towns on either side of the strait, Menai Bridge and Bangor. The chairman of the celebration committee, Dr J. A. Davis, principal of the Normal College in Bangor, told us what they were doing by way of commemoration and why. Well, in the first place, because it's of great um, historical interest, but also um, as a piece of um, engineering, it was worth commemorating. But it originally started with an idea in the civic society in Menai Bridge that something should be done to commemorate this, and originally it was merely that some flood lighting should take place on the 150th uh, com- uh, year of its construction. They formed a celebration committee, and that, of course, uh, developed, subdivided itself into eight committees, and the simple idea of merely flood lighting bridge ended up with eight committees and a week's activities, uh, ranging from, um, well, an official uh, flood lighting on the Friday night. Then we had at the Tegreen Gallery a special exhibition depicting the life in Menai Bridge and in this area before the construction of the bridge, during the construction and after the construction of the bridge. On the Sunday morning, we had an interdenominational bilingual service where the sermon was given by the Archbishop of Wales. On Monday night, um, a concert at the school David Hughes by the children of that school. Then on Tuesday and Wednesday night, a special uh, production at Theatre Gwynedd on the theme of the bridge. Then on the Thursday, we are having um, a fancy dress ball. On Friday, um, a rather special uh, reception, which is held at the uh, normal college. And because of the in- very close link, indeed, uh, the reason for the bridge, the pressure came originally uh, from the Irish peers because of the poor communications between uh, Ireland and Westminster. There was a great deal of local opposition. But because of the very strong links between this part of Wales and Wales as a whole and Ireland, we thought it would be very, very appropriate to invite the Irish ambassador to be the guest of honour um, at that reception. Indeed, the toast, uh, the, the toast list is something as follows. The bridge is the one road link between Ireland and the European community. And therefore we have asked Mr. Cladwin Hughes, the Member of Parliament for Anglesey, to propose a toast to Europe. And Mr. George Thompson, the EEC representative, is flying over from Brussels to respond. The second toast is proposed by the Secretary of State for Wales, Mr. John Morris, to Thomas Telford and the bridge. And the response is by the Irish Ambassador. What the Irish ambassador's contribution was, we just can't say, because for the first time in almost 30 years of producing programmes for radio, we were actually refused admission to a function which was part of a week's events we'd been specially invited to attend. We hasten to add that this was not typical of the welcome we received in Wales generally, or at the other functions at which we presented ourselves. A special brochure was issued to commemorate the 150th anniversary of Thomas Telford's masterpiece, and this contained a brief history of the bridge, written by Mr H. Anthony, 
a former assistant headmaster of the David Hughes Comprehensive School, Menai Bridge. He told us something more about transport conditions in that part of Wales 150 years ago. Anglesey, you see, in those days was very isolated. Uh, North Wales in itself was isolated. Beyond Conway, towards Carnarvon, there were very, very few roads. You see, apart from a road along the coast, people travelled mostly on bridal paths. Uh, goods were carried to a certain large extent on uh, pony backs, mule trains, and, uh, well, even in some cases, the local brimbo sort of sledge. Nearly all the goods around this part of the coast were carried by sea on coastal shipping. And so Anglesey was isolated. Carnarvonshire, to a large extent, was isolated. Uh, contact with Anglesey was, in the, since the Middle Ages, by ferry. There were no bridges across the straits. You had six ferries going down from uh, Bomaris on the one hand to below Bangor, the Abermenai ferries it's known on the other, t- on the other t- to, to beyond Carnarvon, the Abermenai ferry on the other. But in the middle of these you had the Porthaithwy ferry, which was becoming the most important of these ferries because of its connection with Bangor. It was the one nearest to Bangor. Now, during the end of the 18th century, roads had been built to Bangor. Firstly, you had one from the coast uh, over Panmine Maur, along the coast of Bangor. You had, secondly, a road from Bangor being built up towards Shrewsbury through Capel Curig and the place called Pentravoilus. And so you had a connecting link with Shrewsbury. So you had people coming along from Chester along the coast to Bangor. You could have people coming from Shrewsbury over the mountains to Bangor. And Bangor became a focal point. But uh, Manor Bridge, or Porthaithui, as it is then known, was the nearest connecting link to Bangor, and so the Bangor-Porthaithui ferry became the most important of all the ferries along the straits. Uh, the ferry itself <laughs> caused a considerable amount of perturbation at the time. Uh, firstly, you had the old flat boats, which you used to get your horse and coaches on, or you could have, uh, say, foot passengers uh, even uh, brought across. And uh, the charges were pretty excessive. They usually charged about two and sixpence per wheel for a coach, and about a shilling for each passenger, which meant that you had to pay, say, ten shillings plus so much per passenger to go across. In those days, that was a considerable sum of money, yes. about as much as an ordinary person would earn in a week. At a meeting of the gentlemen of the county of Anglesey, held at Windy on the 14th day of October 1782, for taking into consideration the several complaints of impositions, delay and ill-treatment experienced by the public at Potter Aithway Ferry, it was resolved... That it is the unanimous sense of this meeting that the occupiers of the said ferry have in various instances extorted from passengers greater sums than they are legally entitled to. That it is likewise the unanimous sense of this meeting that the occupiers of the said ferry have in many instances been guilty of neglect and delay in carrying passengers over the said ferry, and that the boats are dangerous and much out of repair, and that they do not keep a sufficient number of men to work and ply the said ferry. That these are grievances disgraceful to the county and injurious to the public and that it is the unanimous sense of this meeting that the owner of the said ferry be made acquainted with these resolutions, and that in case the ferry is not immediately put under proper regulations, we think it a duty we owe the public 
The local gentry who wanted to get out of Anglesey uh, about 1783 banded together with the idea of having a bridge built across. They got into, they contacted various engineers, a chap by the name of Goldborn, another by the name of Nichols, they produced various schemes. These schemes, you, you know, the best described as comic opera schemes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were not serious. The position was that along the streets, as I said the, earlier on, you had a terrific amount of coastal shipping going. You had as many as 4,000 ships per year going along those straits. Now, if you put a bridge over, the sort of bridge which they suggested, it meant that you were going to cut that trade right off. It would be impossible for any ship to go back and forth because the first idea was to have an embankment, a solid embankment, which would block the streets entirely. Well, there was a considerable amount of agitation and objection to this. And so the second idea was to put a bridge across with drawbridges in. And these drawbridges you could raise to allow these ships to pass through. The drawbridges would be about 40 foot wide. But if you can imagine a sailing ship going down in, say, rough weather and through fierce currents and going through a drawbridge or a gap 40 foot wide and being able to do it without hitting the structure of the bridge, well, you've got a better imagination than I have. It's practically impossible. So I'm referring to these as comic opera ideas. And uh, the result was the whole thing remained as an idea until the Irish demand came in. Uh, As you probably all know, uh, Pitt, the younger of that period, wanted... uh, Ireland to become part of Britain for various reasons, one of them being the French Revolutionary War and the Napoleonic Wars, which were in existence at that period. And uh, in 1800, you had the Act of Union, so that Ireland became, uh, should I, this is a dirty word, is it, part (laughs) of Britain? Indeed, yes. (laughs) Since when, of course, the Irish have always wanted it not to be part of Britain. (laughs) And... uh, in 1801, a chap by the name of John Rennie was a proposition to see if he could produce plans over the straits. Well, he produced two, well, four schemes, but there were two basic principles. One was a three-arched bridge, and the other was a single-arched bridge. The whole thing lapsed, nothing happened, because the war with Napoleon broke out again shortly afterwards. And the whole thing remained in abeyance until around 1811. Now, during this period, the Irish members of Parliament were bringing considerable pressure in the English government, or the English Parliament, on securing an improvement of the road from London to Shrewsbury to Bangor to Holyhead. That road could be improved, but all the time you had the fact that there was no way of going over the streets except by means of the ferry. Uh, I think Mr. John Foster, who was the Chancellor of the Irish Exchequer, uh, was one of the leaders of this movement. In 1811, he was raised to the House of Lords, and a few years later, the whole matter was taken up again by Sir Henry Parnell, strongly supported by your Irish contingent. You see, the position was this. <laughs> Irish MPs had to get to London, to Westminster. They probably had to travel home to be in their own, say, constituency as well. You had English trade with Ireland developing. You had your Irish gentry wanted to go to take part in the enjoyments and, I presume, benefits of the English society life in London. 
you had the gentry of Anglesey wanted to go over to Dublin because Dublin was nearer to Anglesey than London was. And they preferred going to Dublin, many of the Anglesey gentry, to going to London, where you had a, a, a very extensive mode of living in that period. They preferred, they preferred Dublin. And so your demand for this road connection was becoming more and more important. The pressure was such that in 1811, the uh, English Parliament decided that they would approach their most important engineer of the period, Thomas Telford, and propositioned him to examine the London Shrewsbury Hollyhead Roadway, to improve the Shrewsbury Hollyhead Roadway, and to build a bridge over the Menai Strait. Thomas Telford was born in Dumfrieshire in Scotland in 1757, the son of a sheep farmer. He first worked as a stonemason, educated himself by continuous reading, and was eventually appointed as surveyor of public works for the county of Salop. In 1792, he had his first job as an engineer, when he supervised the construction of a bridge across the Severn at Montford. He was also chief engineer of the Caledonian Canal from 1803 onwards, and some punster, referring to his work as a road builder, called him the Colossus of Roads. Telford builds his roads in the Roman fashion, and it is his proud boast that they will last for centuries. Whatever about roads, Telford had still a great deal of opposition to overcome before his detailed proposals for what was to become his best-known work were accepted. The main suspension pier on the Anglesey side will be placed on Anisamoch, which rises above high water level. On the Carnarvon side, it will be necessary to obtain a firm rock foundation. These main suspension piers will be uh, carried to a height of 100 feet above the level of high water, and from thence to their apex a further 53 feet. Uh, The road platform will have two parallel carriageways, each 12 feet wide, separated by a central footway of 6 feet. To support it will be four distinct sets of suspension chains, uh, four chains in each set. Uh, The distance between the points of suspension will be 580 feet. Work soon began on blasting operations on Anisimok. At this juncture, however, three influential local landowners succeeded in stirring up again considerable opposition to the bridge and work was stopped temporarily, while the commissioners appealed to the government for special powers. John Reddy and Thomas Telford were further examined by the Select Committee under the chairmanship of Sir Henry Parnell. Mr. John Rennie and Mr. Thomas Telford, sir. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Rennie, rest easy. I shall try not to detain you any longer than necessary. Tell me, have you seen any instances of bridges of a large size, similar in construction to the one proposed by Mr. Telford? Uh, No, I have not. Uh, The only thing of the kind that I have seen is a model made by Captain Brown... uh, a bridge of similar construction to this, over which I was drawn in a carriage and found myself perfectly safe and easy. I see. And where was this bridge erected? At uh, Captain Brown's manufactory on the Isle of Dogs. Uh, I made the coachman drive several times over it, as I might see how it acted. I see. And whilst you were driving over it, Mr. Rennie, did you notice any vibration at all? Oh, uh, very little vibration. I see. Could you calculate the weight that might be distributed upon such a bridge as this, Supposing it were filled as full as might be with 
A herd of oxen? No, no, I, I cannot answer that question offhand. Mr. Telford, perhaps you could answer it for us. Well, the, the weight as near as I can calculate of covering it with a drove of oxen would be well, about 300 tons. It depends on the weight of the cattle. <laughs> but in driving cattle, there is never that quantity together. In driving cattle, no one ever thinks of driving 200 all of a heap. Right, sir. Thank you, Mr. Telford. The suspension principle had already been in existence. It had been used over the River Tweed by a Captain Brown. Now, most of you probably know that the suspension bridge idea had been used in South America by the natives, it had been used in India and Malaysia and by the natives, whenever they wanted to cross a gorge. You shot lianas or creepers or something over, you suspended uh, these creole, you fastened these creepers together, and you were able to walk over them. Now, Telford decided to use this idea. From these two big pillars, he would suspend chains, or he would... Uh, have chains held firmly in position. From these chains, vast chains, he would suspend a roadway or a bridge. You will call it the deck. And she would have a suspension bridge over the Menai. With the help of the Irish MPs, he managed to get this through Parliament. There was terrific objection from the Canalja interests, from all the coastal interests. They had the idea that it was going to affect their shipping. Now, the suspension bridge idea was introduced by Telford to obviate this, to cut this out. The idea being that if this suspension bridge was at least 100 foot above the level of the water, that all your ships could go along underneath. Well, your committee feel great satisfaction in having it in their power to be able to say that Mr. Telford has completely convinced them of the practicability of such a plan. <coughs> now, the numerous instances that have been given to the public of Mr. Telford's talents as a civil engineer fully proved that the House may place great confidence in his opinion. Yeah. But when his opinion is fully backed by such men as Mr. Rennie and other eminent engineers, the case for the practicability of such a plan appears to be completely no. made out. No. Furthermore... I must protest. I, I wish to inform the House of the great protest made by the many respected inhabitants of the County of Carnarvon to the bill brought in by the worthy baronet. Yeah. And furthermore... I am instructed by those well acquainted with the intricate and difficult navigation of the Straits that if such a bridge is constructed, it will completely destroy the navigation and ruin the fighting down the canals. The House will hardly need reminding the evidence given on a previous occasion uh, when all seamen, captains of vessels and pilots were unanimously of the opinion that if a bridge were constructed on the spot now proposed by Mr. Telford, uh, destruction to the navigation would be inevitable. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, all the objections which were formerly made to the bridge on account of the navigation have been done away with. There is no way that it can affect the navigation in the least. Yeah, I yeah. shall vote for the bill. It seems extraordinary to me that the worthy baroness should ask this house for a grant of nearly £100,000 of public money to erect a bridge which is not absolutely necessary. Yes, yes, yes. There is already a very good ferry which carries people across the Menai, perfect safety and with a minimum delay. Oh. I hope that this house will show its determination not to countenance an expenditure so enormous 
and at the same time so unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, will the present Chancellor of the Exchequer acquiesce in so improvident a grant? I wish my right honourable friend were a little more consistent in his votes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there have been occasions, after all, when he has been more than prodigal at public expense. Yes. What about the Elgin Marble? And yes. the Greek manuscripts. Order, gentlemen, order. And did he not last year speak in favour of an initial grant of £20,000 for this very project? The bridge is necessary and can hardly be injurious to navigation. Moreover, Parliament is obliged to give Irish members a safe and convenient means of access oh, right, right. to the capital. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. My right, honourable friend, is of course... In 1819, Porthethwe was merely a convenient ferry site on the Anglesey side of the strait. Today, as the town of Menai Bridge, it has a continually expanding population. It also has an art gallery which, for the 150th anniversary of the opening of the Suspension Bridge, housed a special exhibition of documents, plans, photographs, engravings, and objects associated with Telford and the town's development. Daily, busloads of schoolchildren visited the exhibition, and had the exhibits and the history explained to them by people like Rodri Priest-Jones, Education Officer of the Gwyneth Archive Services. If we look at this chart here, now, this is a very important chart and a very important document. Now, can everybody gather around? And I'll go across here, if I may. Excuse me. Ooh. Now, then, because it was so difficult to cross the, the Menai, it was decided to build a bridge. Right? And it was decided to build a bridge because people wanted to travel to Ireland as quickly as possible and people wanted to travel to Anglesey as quickly as possible. So, here is the document that was drawn up by Parliament giving permission to build a bridge. This is the Act of Parliament, and these are the people who signed it. Many of these people are Irish lords and ladies, um, and there are numerous people there from Wales and England as well. And these have uh, written like this. Uh, at a meeting of several Irish peers and members of Parliament held at the thatched house on May the 3rd, 1819. Sir Henry Parnell, but in the chair, the following resolution was agreed to. And then the resolution says um, that it is of great public importance that a bill be passed uh, that is now before the House of Commons for building a bridge across the Menai Strait. And this was passed in 1819. Meal with Ian now. And they gave permission to Thomas Telford to build a bridge over the Menai Strait. Now, sir, what's the king try for him? Blatt, where will he be? Thomas Telford. The money, Thomas Telford. Or should we not go to the bar water or hunting dot? Yeah. Uh, preparations had been made in 1818, but work only began in 1819 on the bridge. Uh, they found out that the best stone, the hardest stone, was from a place called Penman, about eight or nine miles up uh, Anger to the corner of Anglesey. Uh, the wood they got from the Baltic and the iron work was f forged uh, near Shrewsbury by a man by the name of uh, Hazeldean. Uh, in, in addition to that, you had a foundry near the bridge where they were going to do local bits or small bits of the iron work. So everything was set up. Your workforce was brought here. Adverts were put in the local newspapers. You had masons brought. Numbers of them came from England, and quite a few came from uh, Scotland. Uh, I don't know of any from Ireland. 
but several came from Scotland at that period. You can find this out by going through the records of the births and deaths in the uh, uh, church uh, parish registers in Manor Bridge. You had people like Lennox and Carmichael and other names of that sort. Well, they came and they settled down to erecting the piers, these two vast pillars with their archways, which would be on either side of the bridge. The stonework there is terrific. The top, from the deck of the bridge up, what you might call the pyramids, all the stones there are doweled together. And uh, it's, the, the, this masonry construction is such, it stood 150 years, and it's as sound now as it was when it was first built, in spite of the battering of the tides and the force of the winds, the elements. The now, chains must have been a big job to put those in position. The chains were a terrific job to put in position. They had them uh, cast, as I say, or forged uh, in Shrewsbury. They were brought up along the Ellesmere Canal. They were brought up here. Now, to put those together, they decided, or Telford decided, that he would have them in three links, uh, in three stretches. The first stretch would be fastened from the Canalmish's side up to the top of the pyramid. The second would be connected, or would be laid on one big raft, this raft would be 400 foot long and 6 foot wide. He was going to float this between your two piers. Your chain, the length of chain would be laid right across it. Then on the, the, the Manor Bridge side, you would have another chain from the top of the pyramid down and fastened on the Anglesey side. Now, he has to connect these three lengths of chains. The one from the Canalmish side was fairly easy. They let it down until it came level with the length of chain which is on this raft, and they were shackled together. Now he wants to pull the whole of this up to connect with the length which is from the top of the pyramid or the pier on the Anglesey side. They got some, not cables, but wire horses, which they fastened to the end on the raft. They pulled these wire horses up over the pier and fasten them to two capstans. On these capstans, they had 150 men working. So they'd all coincide and pull together or push together. They had two fifers there. These two fifers played martial music. Mm. And as the beat and the rhythm of the music came through, so the men had to push. And gradually, by means of these horses, they pulled this length of chain right up until it reached the top of the pier on the Anglesey side. It is then bolted and shackled together. So you had your chain connected from Carnarvon over the top of the bridge, over the piers, to Anglesey. The um, uh, history of this bridge is well, has been fairly well documented. Sir Norman Rountree, President of the British Institution of Civil Engineers. And But we do know that uh, Telford who very rarely showed any emotion in completion of his works, on this occasion did. Uh, there are two okay, uh, uh, highlights, but the principal one was the actual getting across of the first chain. And the story, which many of you probably know, is that uh, having floated it across and got it hoisted, in a rem the hoisting, I believe, took only just over an hour, which is remarkable. With modern machinery, it wouldn't be much quicker. And uh, when the chain was across, he climbed the tower and inspected to see that it was securely fixed. His personal 
inspection and interest was notable. Having signalled that it was uh, correctly hoisted, uh, the hats went in the air and the three cheers, and great quantities of ale were dispensed for everybody to take part. So much so, I gather, that the first crossing of the bridge was made almost immediately by two of the workmen who went across on the single chain. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) At the end of the uh, exercise, Telford himself was discovered um, offering prayers of thanksgiving that the achievement was successful. The bridge was finished in 1826. Uh, At the beginning of 1826... It is supposed to have been opened on January the 26th, but uh, various people couldn't turn up. And so Telford delayed it until January the 30th. Uh, the idea was that the bridge itself should be opened on January the 30th, during the day, about 10 o'clock in the morning. But Provis and various others, they considered the matter, and they thought that the, since the government was paying for the bridge or was providing the money for the bridge by Act of Parliament, that the first vehicle over should be the Royal Mail. And so Provis, who was a resident engineer, and various other people connected with the bridge, went to Bangor, and they stopped the mail coach, the Shrewsbury, London, the Shrewsbury mail coach at Bangor, and they ordered the driver to take, drive the coach over the bridge. The driver reckoned that he had to go over the ferry as before, <laughs> that he had no orders from anybody. Well, fortunately, the superintendent of the roadway was at the, uh, of the mill coaches was at Bangor at the time, a chap by the name of Mr. Akers, and he gave the coachman specific instructions to cross over the bridge. Well, everybody got onto this coach. Uh, Provis, Mr. Hazeldean, various other people got into it. Everybody who could clung onto it. Uh, Mr. John Talbot an MP from County Vernon in uh, Ireland were, got onto the top. And when they came towards the bridge, he managed to get hold of the whip and uh, told the driver that he himself would drive. He came to the gate, and when the tollkeeper who was there stopped the, the, the mail coach, the idea being that every vehicle going over had to pay a toll, except mail coaches. And he thought this was going to be some vehicle coming over. He tried to stop it. And Vernon himself, uh, Talbot himself uh, shouted at him, Who dare stop His Majesty's mail? The result was the gates were opened and the mail coach went over about 1.30 in the morning. This was the first vehicle to cross, the Irish mail. This shows the importance of the Irish connection, that uh, the Irish mail coach had precedence over every other vehicle. Throughout the years since 1826, the Menai Suspension Bridge has bestowed the ravages of winds and tides, and in more recent times the daily assault of cars, trucks and juggernauts across its thousand feet span. A man who worked on it from 1922 up to its reconstruction in 1940 is 77-year-old Willie Jones, whose earliest recollection is of trying to sneak across it as a small boy without paying the penny toll. It was poetic justice that he should then spend almost 20 years on it as tollkeeper. When I first started, the tolls were buses and coaches, three and six a day. Cars, four seats a car, one and nine. Two seats a car and a lorry, or a horse-drawn lorry, one and two. Motorcycle, sixpence. Pedestrians, penny. Pushbikes, a penny. Cattle, shilling a score. Sheep, 
course as I was any <laughs> sixpence a score. And uh, yes, sixpence a score. And the contract tickets for pa uh, pedestrians, one for a month. And it came, they brought uh, contract tickets out for cars. They paid in the beginning £3.10 for six months. Then they brought it down to £1.10. And the last ticket that was sold was five shillings for three months. And then the tolls came to the an end altogether. came to an end altogether in 1940. But the pedestrian toll had come, come off long before then. When did it end? Well, I'm not quite sure when it ended. It was sometime in your lifetime anyhow. Sometime while I was on the bridge. Yes. Oh yes, yes. And you actually worked on the bridge from what year? I worked on the bridge from nine, from the 1st of April 1922 till uh, last month of 1940. And I sold the last ticket from the Anglesey side. And I've still got the sixpence that was paid for that ticket. I sold the tickets to Sir Richard Buckley. He really uh, cut the tape, you see, that was across the entrance of the bridge. And I've still got the sixpence. You remember the reconstruction of the bridge yes, between sir. 1938 and 1940? Oh, yes, I was there. That was a big job. It was a big job. But they were marvellous at it, you know. No, the old span that was there, there. They were built in half of the span, right under the, the old span, you know, and lifting it, then taking the old span, one side of the bridge, off, bringing the new one up like this, you know, with jacks, lifting it up like this, and working the traffic single line on the other span, you see. The traffic never stopped, in fact? Never stopped, no. Kept on going all day and night. Never stopped. Soon the Menai Suspension Bridge will not be the only one carrying a roadway between Anglesey and the mainland. Its sister bridge, Robert Stevenson's tubular Britannia, will in the near future cater for road as well as rail traffic. But Telford's bridge, after 150 years, is still important and still unique. It is the only link, road link at the present moment, between the rest of the world and Anglesey. It is the only road link between the rest of the world, Anglesey, Hollyhead, and from Hollyhead to Ireland. <laughs>